Good morning, boys and girls, and welcome to a session of Fun with Grammar. Now, for any guests among us, I want to let you know this is not normal, and I'm not normal, and the normal preachers will be back at another time, okay? But we play Fun with Grammar in my Sunday school class sometimes, and, and Fun with Grammar is usually dealing with Greek grammar. And since we haven't played this game before, let's stick with English. And just since it's just kind of beginning, let's go just down to some of the basics. And I want to look at just some of the basic words of grammar, but maybe do it with a little twist. And, and a couple of these words maybe I can associate with our pastors. For example, if we think of nouns, Gary is a noun. I identify Gary as a noun. He's solid. He's strong. He's what it's all about. Right? Isn't a noun what it's all about? I think he's a noun kind of guy, and maybe because Ben Witherington says that when you're constructing your theology and building a theology, the nouns, the words that name God are the most important. God is creator. God is redeemer. God is savior. God is judge. God is shepherd. All of those words, he says, that's the place where we do our theology. The nouns, it's all in the nouns. Lewis, who's not here, he's a verb. He's a verb all the way, right? You got to say, Lewis, he's here, he's there. He's like the Energizer bunny, and you want to settle him down and say, Lewis, time, sit down. And he sits down long enough to put on his running shoes, and then he's gone. But the, the verbs are pretty important to talk about what God has done and what he is doing and what he will do. But actually, they're not that far from the nouns because the God who is creator, noun, is the one who creates with a verb. The God who redeems, noun, the redeemer, is the one who is redeeming. The God who is shepherd is involved in shepherding. So those two guys are not too far apart. They're both crucial for our theology, I guess. Now, I don't want to leave out Damon. Adverb! If you know Damon, he is an adverb. He is very much like Jesus, that he does not want you just to have life. He wants you to have life abundantly. He wants you to pray fervently. He wants you to worship wholeheartedly. And the funny thing about Damon is he married another adverb. <laughs> Together, I think they want you to have life really abundantly. Now, I'm aware that uh, Stephen King said the road to hell is paved with adverbs. But he was talking about writing. When it comes to church, I think we could use more adverbs. Maybe God wants to bring out the adverb within us. But me, I'm kind of favorite, favoritism toward adjectives. I mean, no, Mark Twain said, whenever you see an adjective, kill it. Because you lose the flow. You want the nouns and the verbs and nouns and verbs and you... Adjectives are just in the way. I think they're pretty great. Because I can give you two nouns and a simple verb, and it, eh, 
I could say, Robin is a lady. Now, we don't use lady terminology much in our house. If you think southern lady, that's not, you know. We don't talk about gentlemen either. Um, but if I add an adjective, Robin is a foxy lady. <laughs> oh, ooh, tell me more, tell me more. <laughs> when the creator, not only of the heavens and earth, but of language as well, wanted to reveal himself, he did it in a series of seven adjectives. And I'm thinking of Exodus 34. What Damon was reading was preparation for the passage that I really want to have before me. It's in Exodus 34, starting at verse 5. And listen for the adjectives. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And I want to stop there. What we've been set up for, by what Damon read, and coming over, it seems like Moses is expecting, and we're expecting some visual experience, that he would see something of the glory of God. And what we get is an audible revelation. We get words that describe this God, we don't get a visual picture of the glory, but we get words describing the one who inhabits that glory. Seven adjectives. And I know there's a nerd out here somewhere who says, they're not really seven adjectives. If you look at that, one of those forgiving looks more like a participle. And there are nerds around, but you've got to just go with me and... I remind you that a participle is basically a verbal adjective, and its main function often is as an adjective. So we got seven adjectives. <laughs> the stamp of approval. But what we do is we hear. We hear, and in these adjectives, I think, we're going beyond the noun that names God. We're going beyond the verbs that describe God's action. We're getting the description and words that describe the character of God. And I think in this case, adjectives win because it is the character of God that will lead to his normal actions, his behaviors, all will flow out of who he is and his character. And as we see those things going into place, we give name, we give nouns to the thing that God is doing. So we have these seven descriptive terms. And I know there's some child out here tugging on mom's sleeve, saying... Mommy, does that mean he's going to do seven Hebrew word studies? And our 
biblically aware mother would say, it's okay, honey. He knows that one of those words is used twice. It's kind of strange in a list of adjectives, but he uses it twice. It's repeated, so there are only really six. And the child is still tugging. Mom, I didn't bring my pillow. And there are a few adults thinking the same thing. So let me say, I'm not going to do that to you today. Maybe as a sign of God's grace. For one, if we started going into those words, at some point that repeated word, I'd have to be talking about God's chesed. And as we start doing it, and I say it and repeat it, some of you are going to want to try to imitate it and say it, and you're going to end up spitting on the head of the person in front of you. So we don't want to do that. But secondly, more importantly, that while there is great value and worth in studying each of those words, when a writer, or in this case a speaker, piles up words like this, these are words that are in the same area of meaning. They all overlap. Some of these words actually used, are used as synonyms for each other. The speaker is not trying to give us seven or six different ideas. These words are all used to reinforce, to strengthen, to bring out a, a single kind of conscious idea for the hearer. The picture is, and these words come together, I think, to give us this one complex idea. And it, it's hard for us in English because it's, it's almost like we have to make two things out of it. But it has to do with God's faithfulness, reliability, dependence in his graciousness. That he is gracious, forgiving, merciful, constantly, faithfully, reliably. That one concept is being pushed here. This is our God, the God who acts this way with us. Thankfully, oh so thankfully, God describes himself in terms that are relational. These are things that happen in relationship. And I say thankfully because think what we would have had here if this description of God were left to the philosopher or the theologian. It would be like the titles in some of the philosophy books considering God or some of the systematic theologies and it's all about omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence and omni this and that. And you got to wonder, which is more attractive? <laughs> Terms that are dry, cold, really uninviting, or a word about a person who relates to us in this way as a person. I mean, the philosopher will want to go on about their ideas, but even the most uneducated person probably in Palestine would have been saying, omnipotence? We had that covered in the first verse of the first chapter of the first book in the Bible. In the beginning, God created heavens and earth. You want omnipotence? Omniscience? Scripture tells me that even in my mother's womb, God carefully knit me together and knew me and cared for me. And before I even had a conscious thought, he was conscious of me. Omnipresence, 
Scripture says, where can I go from your presence? I can ascend to the highest height or the deepest low, deepest pit, and you were there. I can hide myself in the darkness and cover myself with it like a cloak, yet the darkness is not darkness to you. You see, Mr. Theologian, philosopher, we had all of your concerns covered from the get-go. But what you're thinking will never tell you in making God's logical definition, you will never know how that God who knows everything about you will treat you in his omnipotence. All of those terms, the omnis, are not biblical terms because the biblical terms all have to do with relationship, how God relates to us. What we really know, need to know is when life is moving along or when I am in the deepest spiritual or emotional pit where I've failed grievously in some aspect of my life, who is there? What kind of God is there? To find that we have a God who describes himself in personal terms. The words God uses are the way a person relates to a person. And here God reveals himself and how he relates to us. So these terms, in essence, become a creed for Israel. These terms describing God become its creed. They repeat those words. They appeal to God for it in those terms. And they expect to see that lived out among them. These words in essence, are this creed. And so we don't often get a lot of these words piled up together, but this becomes, these words all get so repeated often that they could be referred to, or this idea is being referred to even when not all those words are there. Sometimes three or four or five of those words might be present, and we know what he's talking about. Sometimes even one word, that word that got repeated, sometimes translated Loving kindness, or in two words, steadfast love. Like in Psalm 136, you get this list of thing after thing that God has done. His goodness, his graciousness. And in between every one is, his steadfast love endures forever. Trying to hammer home the idea that every single thing God has done flows from his graciousness and his goodness to us. Often, there are two words. That same word, steadfast love, is joined with the word faithfulness. And we hear about God's steadfast love and faithfulness. We tie it into our passage about abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I guess if you have the New American Standard or the King James, it says steadfast love or loving kindness and truth. Because that word that is there can be used faithful or it can mean true. The truth. They're not far apart, actually. <laughs> Those two word meanings. And sometimes we have a hard time which is which because whatever is true is something you can rely on. And if you could always rely and depend on something, that's true. It's, we have that in English. We talk about true instead of false. 
But when you talk about a true friend, you're talking about a reliable, a dependable person. And what's interesting, and we don't want to go into all the linguistics on it, and word meanings and so on, but scholars are overwhelmingly in agreement that this, there's a trajectory right from here to the Gospel of John. Because this phrase, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, or truth, is correctly translated, or one of the options for translating that is full of grace and truth. The steadfast love and faithfulness of God or the full of grace and truth. And you know I'm thinking of John 1.14. The word, which he's already said was God, word verse 1, the word was God. Now he said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. And what are the descriptions of that glory that is full of grace and truth? What he's saying right there is this God who showed his character here to Moses. It has become lived out in the person of Christ. In the incarnation, the very character of God we have here revealed is seen in the person of Jesus. And so for Jesus, then for us, is the ultimate revelation of who God is. God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so this creed in Exodus becomes our creed as Christians because we have seen all these characteristics lived out in the person of Jesus. Now there's more to the statement here in Exodus and I would just soon skip over that part and stay with this and keep going. But some are going to say, well, you're leaving out the problem part, which isn't really a problem. But in the continuation of verse 7 there, there's the but, right? God's going to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. But who will by no means cleanse, I'm sorry, no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. That is, this God will hold those who are guilty for sin to account. And there are those who want to say, you know, this is a contradiction, this is a tension we can't live with. For us, it's not an easy. That's why I think we have to really deal with it because the straight line between these things comes back again to the person of Jesus and ultimately to the cross where we see the reconciliation of these ideas, where we see how grace is both to us free but horrifically costly. It will be paid for, but in a way that makes that grace available to us. Jews had a harder problem. They didn't have the revelation of Jesus to understand how God is working these out, and so you get a couple of thoughts. From the more secular leaders, we've seen those who fall, who go on astray. They have their priests, they have the kings, they have their rulers. They even have their false prophets to support them in the idea that God's on our side, it's all good. We don't have to live in the kind of obedience that others are telling us. We don't have to follow God's commands. We, God's temple is here. This is his city. It's all good. It's all good. 
And then the prophet comes along, and you keep saying, it's all good, it's all good. But it's not all good. There's another perspective. For the one want to keep God's goodness is just to Israel, and God's judgment is for those outside. And the prophets want to come back and say, no. If you continue in your stiff-necked disobedience and you keep rejecting God's grace, punishment will come. Ultimately, in the exile, it comes. But that tension, actually, uh, that, that, God, that, that part of Israel wants to keep judgment outside there for the nations, that's not us. We're with God, and so he'll take care of us. Um, and so there's a difference that prophets want to say judgment can happen to God's people. And we have this interesting thing that happens with Jonah. Jonah seems to be on the side of those things. They think all judgment goes to the Gentiles. Jonah is there, and God sends him to prophesy, to prophesy against Nineveh. Go speak of their destruction. And really, in, in, Nineveh, in uh, Jonah's sight, he says, yeah, God, go get them. <laughs> go get them. They deserve it. And God tells him to go preach their destruction, and Jonah runs away. And God gets some creative means together to bring him back, put him back on track. And he goes and he preaches, God will overturn. Same word used for Sodom and Gomorrah. God will overturn the city of Nineveh. And that fits right in with what Jonah wants. But what Jonah knows, maybe some interpreters of the Bible should pick this idea up in some other places. Jonah knows that when God proclaims destruction, makes one of those sometimes the promises or statements of what he's going to do, there is an implied condition. And Jonah did not want to live with that. It's interesting, Jonah's words uh, at the mist, that, that it turns out that he preaches destruction and Nineveh repents, and so God relents of the destruction he planned. And we have that discussion where Jonah now is angry at God for turning in grace to these people. He says, O Lord, and he says he's angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew the creed. And that you cannot contain God's grace to one people. If anyone will repent, he will be there. And so while some want to keep the grace for God in Israel and the punishment outside, Prophets tell us God's judgment will come to those who rebel. And God's grace cannot be contained, and we don't limit it to one people, and the gospel is starting to be proclaimed right here. This grace of God will move to all people who are willing to receive him. So we've got this big picture of God, and it functions as the creed, and it's at the core of Israel's faith. Now what do we do with it? 
Because this idea, the tentacles from this run into every piece of theology and every aspect of Christian living and spirituality. And you can't cover them all, so I just want to cover one. One aspect to think about for just a bit. And it comes down to one word. And it's a word someone in the congregation mentioned to me about three or four months ago, and they were speaking about how important this idea was. And it's the word, remember. Remember. We are called to be a people who remember, who remember who God is. And that remembrance then, I want to take it in the sense of a very active thing. Remembering is an action. That is, I want to think about it in terms of the way we see God. We read about, and God remembered Noah, and God remembered Abraham, God remembered Rachel, and so on. That there are times in the right timing in God's purposes that he brings his focused attention to a person or a place or a situation, and he acts in goodness. He resolves the conflict with his mercy. That is, it's not like God is some old man with a gray beard who goes into a room and forgets why he's there. What did I come to get? God's aware of it all, but when he remembers means he puts his focus there. And essentially, our call to remember is to put our concentrated focus on who God is. In our case, we're called to keep it there. Our focus must remain there, and when it sways, we must bring it back. If it's, if it's then an active thing that we do, we need to understand remembering on our part is a choice. We have a choice whether we allow our mind off or keep it focused there, and that is our call. I had a student when I was teaching at college in California, and he came late to a Christian college. He was in his early 30s, 33, 34, and at that time I was only a couple of years older than him and had him in my classes. And we developed a friendship besides him being a student. And I remember one of the times we went out and we had coffee together. And he talked about, he said, you know, he said, when I was 17, senior year in high school, senior year in high school, he said, a friend introduced me to cocaine. And he said, that's the only time I did it, just that once. But then he said, and there has never been a day in my life since that time that sometime during the day I didn't want to have that feeling again. He described the euphoria, the sense of warmth, of all the concerns that are around it, just gone. Whatever happened in his life here, what, 17 years later? Every day at some point, the desire for that experience comes back across his mind. 
And so once he has done that, now he has a choice. He has a choice. Will I let my mind go here and focus, or will I draw it back to Christ? What happens to him if he allows his mind to turn and focus there and not let that passing glance become something he dwells on a little bit? And he thinks on, and he remembers that feeling and how good it was, various verses, maybe how he was feeling in the moment. And he starts fantasizing about, how could I make that happen? I wonder, how would I go about getting some if I wanted? How could I do that so it wouldn't mess up my life? And what happens if he allows that to happen? Destruction. It's always a matter of calling our mind back to remembering who God is, who he is to us. And that recognition happens, I think, in the awareness that our natural bent as humans, our gravitational pull is toward forgetting. And remembering is a conscious choice. And so we build into our life structures of remembrance. <laughs> we build those things in our lives that help us and bring us back to remembrance. And then we live within those structures. Moses told Israel, remember the Passover. You not, don't forget to do that because that's a remembrance of what God did. Remember the feasts. Remember Sabbath. Remember, remember. Even scripture, Moses calls, what he has written is a remembrance for them. And sometimes they just stack up some stones in a place because they want to remember whenever I see this stack of stones and I want to remember what was going on at this time in this place and what God did and I intend to use that to cause me to remember. And we come to Sunday school and we come to church and we go to a growth group. We go to Bible studies. We go to celebrate recovery. We, we go to Titus 2 or guys sitting around a fire because we want all these structures there to support our life, to remind us to be things that call us back to remembrance because we want that to be our focus. And we recognize that in focusing on God, you know when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, it's talking at the Lord's Supper, and we start realizing that actually Jesus could step back and talk about everything that should be done in remembrance of him. Remember him. And where this is so crucial is this remembering. Remembering who God is, how he acts, interacts with us, his graciousness is what maintains our identity. Who we are in Christ depends on remembering. As we forget, we start sliding away and becoming Christian in name only. We start doing Christian things, but we don't even consider why we are doing them. The thrill is gone because we've lost focus. 
And the call is always going to be to bring that focus because here is our identity. It is only in Christ that we have life. It is in, only in Christ and in that relationship and focusing that we know who we are. Or better, we know whose we are. Our very life, our identity are caught up in the remembering of the God who is this way. And so we remember we remember God in his nature and the way he has revealed it in Jesus Christ. And we accept our call that we would do all things in remembrance of him. Let's pray. Oh God and Father, when we think of you, we could sing again that song, Behold our God. Oh, you're so amazing, so incredible. And we are so calm about that. Here is our life. Here is who we are. Why we live. Why we do what we do. And we pray, God, that you would impress upon us the value of that in our lives. And we commit ourselves to be that people who remembers you. We pray for the strength and power in Christ Jesus to allow that to happen. We pray in the name of Jesus.